you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we recited together a moment ago, verses 15 through 20. I'd like us to read together the verses that we'll be considering this morning in this message. I'd like us to read verses 19 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, please follow along as I read verses 19 through 23. Verse 19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray once more. Father, we pray that the glories of this passage would shine very brightly in our consideration of it this morning. We pray that you would come and teach us from your word. Show us the wonderful things that are for us in the Bible and in this passage in particular. We pray especially that we would come to hold Christ in our hearts by faith with greater zeal, greater love, and with greater hope. We pray that you would reveal him to us this morning through this consideration of your word. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. This year in our Advent series, we've been considering what is known as the Christ hymn of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Some believe this was perhaps an ancient creed or a hymn of a certain kind. Happily, we are considering this Christ hymn in continuity with a larger series in the book of Colossians, but we've been able to organize the series such that our reflection during this season of Advent is on these verses that focus in a special way on the person of Jesus Christ who has come into the world. Two weeks ago, our brother Zach DePrima preached verses 15 through 17 on Christ's preeminence over the created order. Last week, we had a visiting preacher, brother and friend Matt Smethurst, who preached verse 18 on Christ's preeminence over the new creation and over the church. This morning, I want to preach the last portion of this passage in verses 19 and 20, and I also want to open up verses 21 and 22. So our consideration this morning will be verses 19 through 22, because I believe verses 21 and 22 are very much connected to the ending of the Christ hymn in verses 19 and 20. I really appreciated what Matt said last week about this passage that Colossians 1, 15 through 20 sort of represents something like the greatest resume ever. Uh, you read it, and your sense of the glory and the majesty and the greatness and the preeminence of Christ just sort of expands and expands as the passage unfolds. Our view, our gaze of Him becomes larger and grander and more glorious as uh, we consider the passage. Uh, if that's the case, uh, these last two verses, verses 19 and 20 of the Christ hymn, are the climax of the passage. In these final two verses, verses 19 and 20, Paul moves from who Christ is to what Christ has done through His death on the cross. So this Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn over all creation, the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, this Christ, as the crowning achievement of His life, of His resume, this Christ died. He shed His blood on the cross, and He did it in order to reconcile all things to Himself. And Christ's death and what He accomplished thereby becomes the focus of the next few verses. So I wish to open up verses 19 through 22 this morning and want to talk about this subject. That is what the preeminent Christ has achieved now by His death. The Christ of this hymn, what is it He has achieved by His death? And I will... Consider this passage under two main headings, which are really two simple truths. 
that I want to show you from this passage, and we will spend most of our time on the first point, the first of these two truths. So here is the first point, the first heading, the first truth we glean from this passage. Number one, Christ's work on the cross is about so much more than your individual salvation. Christ's work on the cross is about so much more than your individual salvation. And what I mean by that will become clear in a moment. I'm working here chiefly with verses 19 and 20. If you look at those verses again, there we read verse 19, for in Him, that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether in heaven, or excuse me, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So the, the single complete sentence of verses 19 and 20, it's not really easy to break down, but I think this is the basic structure. All the fullness of God is the subject of the sentence. So we have all the fullness of God, that's the subject, and all the fullness of God does essentially two things. That's the subject, the fullness of God does two things. Number one, it dwells in Christ. All the fullness of God was in Him. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And secondly, all the fullness of God is that power working through Christ to reconcile all things to Himself, making peace by the blood of His cross. So let me open up these two ideas. All the fullness of God, the subject, doing two things. First of all, Paul says all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. Or more specifically, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What does that mean? certainly sounds like a grand theme, a grand idea, whatever it means, but what does it mean? Well, of course, it means at the least that Jesus is God. He is fully God. He's not part God. He's not half God and half man. He is fully God and fully man. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. And you realize even that language, all the fullness, that's redundant language, right? If I say the fullness of God, I mean, full is only, can only be full, you can't really add to it, but Paul is trying to emphasize the point. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. Anything that is God was present in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of God, all the fullness of God dwelled in Him. And we mustn't think, as some have concluded, that the fullness of God was somehow conferred upon Jesus for a time. It dwelled in Him, the text says. It was part of his being. This is a statement of what's called ontology. That is who Jesus is in his being. So if I say, uh, all the fullness of De Prima dwells in my son Dominic, what am I saying? I'm saying he is a De Prima. He cannot be reduced to something less than a De Prima. Whatever it means to be a De Prima is in him. All the fullness of De Prima dwells in my son Dominic. Now, there's an important implication now to this radical statement from Paul that we must appreciate. All the fullness of God dwells in him, an important implication, and it has to do with God's presence, where his presence can be known and experienced. So in the Old Testament Scriptures at various times, it might be said that God was pleased to dwell in the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant or later the temple, or in the cloud, or something like that. But now in the new covenant age, Paul wants to make it perfectly clear that the locus of God's presence and power and person is in Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God is in Him. You don't have to go anywhere else to find God. Everything of God is in Christ. All of God is in Him. In terms of God's presence, it is located in the person of Jesus. And so if I as a Christian want to experience something of the presence of God, I don't need to go anywhere other than where Jesus is. There in the person of Christ, I can experience the fullness of the presence and person of God. But there's a further implication of this radical statement from the Apostle Paul that we should appreciate. Paul is telling us something further about how it is that God makes Himself known. That is to say, how God reveals Himself. If all the fullness of God dwells in Christ, then He is the exclusive, discreet revelation of the living God. 
He, the person of Jesus, is the focal point of divine revelation. So you may ask, and maybe some of you kids are asking this question, who is God? What is God like? How can I know what God is like? The answer is you're to look at Jesus who lived among us on the earth in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and ask yourself, what was He like? What did He say? How did He conduct Himself? What, what was His posture toward the people He came into contact with? Because all the fullness of God, anything that could be known and experienced of God, indeed dwelled in Christ. That's how we learn who the person of God is, by looking at the Son in whom all the fullness of God dwelled. One of my favorite could be considered Christmas text, Advent text, doesn't get as much attention maybe as it should, crucial passage in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. You don't need to turn there, but just listen as I read. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, that's just good writing. Is that a hook or what? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Where can I go if I want to see and know something of the radiance of the glory of God? The writer of the Hebrews is saying, He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God. If I want to know something of the imprint of God's nature, how can I know what that is? How can I know what God is like and what His nature is? I'm to look at Jesus Christ, the Son, who is the perfect imprint of His nature. Another passage that's probably familiar to many of you, we considered the Gospel of John in a series of sermons a couple of years ago. I don't know if it was you, Zach, or Matt, who brought this text up recently. Uh, But in John 14, verse 8, uh, there are the disciples together with Jesus in the upper room. And we read in verse 8, Philip said to the Lord, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. I'd like to see the radiance of the glory of God. Show us the Father, Lord. Can we have an experience like that? And Jesus said to him, verse 9, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. So what does this mean for us practically? Christian, if you want to see God and know God, nothing needs to be added to Jesus. And for that matter, nothing needs to be subtracted from Jesus. You don't have to do any math to get God out of Jesus. It's one-to-one. Here's the fullness of God. Here's Jesus. It's a one-to-one correlation. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. I don't need to add anything else to Jesus to get the presence and the person of God. Now, listen, this is crucial. This is crucial if you are a Christian or if you're not a Christian. If you've been walking in the way for many years, or if you're a young child, all that can be known and experienced of God is to be found in Christ. All that can be known of God, all that can be experienced of God, is to be found in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, Paul goes on in verse 20. We're still under that first main point. The fullness of God didn't just dwell in Christ. There's a second thing the fullness of God did. Secondly, the fullness of God, this divine nature and power, was at work through Christ to do what? To reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So Christ, as the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells, through this divine fullness, apparently has accomplished something by His death. The God-man, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwelled, died. He shed His blood on the cross. And what did His blood shedding at Calvary achieve? Paul says, He reconciled all things to Himself. Things on earth, things in heaven making peace by the blood of His cross. What did the cross achieve? What did it accomplish? The answer, according to verse 20, is the reconciling of all things to Himself. 
Now, what does that mean? Reconciling of all things to Himself. Two questions. Is Paul saying that Jesus has reconciled, in the sense of saving, all individual people to Himself? Is this a universal salvation? Jesus, by His death, has saved everybody, reconciled every single individual person to Himself in a saving way. I think the text gives us no reason to think so. I don't think there's anything in this text that would require us to draw that conclusion. Moreover, it would fly in the face of a number of passages in the Bible and even in Paul that would contradict that kind of an idea of a universal salvation. So I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. That said, I do think the all things includes some people. More on that in a minute. But a second question we should ask is, 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 is all things, is it limited to people? And again, I see no reason to think so. Paul is not thinking narrowly of just individual people. Rather, he is speaking more broadly of the cosmos. We could say the whole created realm, which is being reconciled to himself. So Paul has in view, brothers and sisters, more than just the salvation of individuals. Christ is indeed reconciling all things to himself. Now, I'm aware this idea of Christ reconciling the cosmos, and the whole created order in Himself, that can seem like a nebulous or even a confusing idea. I want to help us kind of, I want to make it more cogent in our minds, okay? What does that mean? And I think we're helped to understand this idea of all things being reconciled in Jesus, the whole created order being reconciled in Him, if we remember much of our Old Testament background. Yes, I'm, I'm relying here on some knowledge of the Old Testament. I'll help us along the way. But you, of course, know that God created the world, Genesis 1 and 2, and His pronouncement over His creation is that it was very good. Everything was in perfect harmony, perfect unity, in perfect equipoise. And then in Genesis 3, we have what? The fall. Uh, Eve takes the fruit, and she gives it to her husband also, the forbidden fruit, and plunges the human race into suffering and into sin. And it doesn't take long before we see the wicked effects of sin now at work in the world. In Genesis 4, Cain murders his brother Abel. In Genesis 6, God looks over the people of the world and He says the thoughts and intents of their hearts is only evil continually. We get to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel and the division and alienation and hubris of men is sort of magnified in a special way there as well. After the fall, everywhere we look, we see fracture and alienation and disharmony and dissonance and strife and warfare and hostility. Everything has been broken up and has come undone. Now mankind is in a state of rebellion against their Maker, no longer walking in a fellowship with God, but in a state of rebellion against God. The Apostle Paul, in one place famously in Ephesians 2, describes our native rebellion against God. Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the status quo after the fall. Mankind in rebellion against God. But it's not just that mankind is disobedient, rebellious, and alienated from God. We are alienated also from one another. Sin broke up the native fellowship and communion and unity and harmony that is meant to exist in human relationships. So at another place, Paul says this in Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Hated by others and hating one another. Like that's just the world we live in. It is an us versus them world, a world marked by hostility and strife and hatred in relationships. Okay, but now, it's important we appreciate, the fracture extends beyond our hatred of God and of one another. 
So the effects of the fall extend beyond the human race. You know this, don't you? The fall doesn't just poison our relationship with God and our relationship to one another. No, the fall ruins everything. Everything is marred by the fall. The fall was like a frag grenade. Kids know what a frag grenade is? Ball, looks like a baseball almost, and it blows up into all sorts of different pieces, right? That's what the fall did. Things that should have been together, they blew up like a frag grenade, and now there's all kinds of disharmony and fracture. It's like, it's like the world, the natural order is like broken glass. You're trying to put back together. You can't, you can't do it. Puzzles are very popular in my home right now. I have little kids, and they're just getting old enough to do puzzles. But as is their want as little kids, not great at it, and um, they don't always put the same puzzle pieces back into the same box that they came in, and all the puzzle pieces get mixed up. And so you'll open the box with all the puzzle pieces, and these pieces just don't go together. They're from different pieces, and they, they, don't, they don't map onto each other, and it can be very frustrating. The world is a little bit like that now because of the fall. You might imagine a football team, 11 players on offense, and they're all executing a different play. The quarterback thinks it's a handoff, the running back thinks it's a pass, the wide receiver, one's blocking, one's running around. There's just confusion. There's no coherence. I was at a, a Centenary United Methodist last week and saw the Messiah, the Winston-Salem Symphony was there performing it. And what do they do? Have you ever seen an orchestra? What do they do at the start of the concert? All the instruments, the violins and the violas and the cellos and the double basses, I mean, they all tune up. Someone sets the pitch and they all play the same note right? Because of the fall, it's like everybody and everything in creation is tuning to a different note. There's a native dissonance in the creation. There's a cacophony in the world. There's a lack of harmony and unity that originally was meant to be there, but now it's, it's forfeit. It's gone. Things are not as they should be. There's disrepair. There's dislocation. There's alienation and disharmony and fracture. So what does this look like in the created realm? Well, very simply now, the ground has thorns. It wasn't supposed to be that way. You weren't supposed to have weeds in your garden. You weren't supposed to have difficulties in your work. Now there's thorns in the ground. Now hurricanes develop in the Atlantic Ocean. They wreak havoc on islands like Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Tsunamis develop in the Pacific and overwhelm whole cities in Japan and Indonesia. Insects spread diseases like malaria. We live in a world of epidemics and pandemics. You can look also at the animal world. See all kinds of horror and violence. Animals killing one another, torturing each other. It's Tennyson who said that nature is red in tooth and claw. You ever heard that line? Nature's red in tooth and claw. What's the idea? We live in a violent world. The natural realm devours one another. The strong eat the weak. There's bloodshed in the natural realm where it shouldn't have been that way. In fact, Tennyson wrote that in a, uh, his most famous poem. It's called In Memoriam, A-H-H, and he was dealing with the premature death of a friend. And he's, he's tortured by this. Someone so beautiful and wonderful and, and, and this, 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 this relationship that he prized so much, this young person died. And he's trying to give voice. This isn't right. It's not how it was meant to be. There's disharmony in this. Why would this happen? And he looks to the created realm and he says, you know what? Nature is red in tooth and claw. This is the world that we live in. There was all kinds of disorder and fracture and hostility even in the creative realm. Paul reflects on this perspective on the creation in Romans 8, 19 through 22. You don't need to turn there. But there Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, Paul is saying, that reconciliation needs to come to more than just people. There's a more cosmic reconciliation that's anticipated, that's supposed to take place. Indeed, the entire created order, the entire cosmos must be renewed and restored. Now, this cosmic reconciliation, this putting back together of the pieces, 
this tuning of the orchestra is precisely what the Old Testament prophets anticipated would be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, the son of David, the Christ. One of the things he would do is that he would fix all of this. He would bring about a reconciliation of people to himself and the nations to one another and indeed the whole created realm so that this broken world wouldn't be like it is anymore. But rather through him, cosmic whole creation order reconciliation would take place. Lots of passages I could bring to your attention that manifest this point. I'll just mention one. It's a well-known text, especially around Christmas time. It's contained in Isaiah 11. You could turn there if you want, but you don't need to. We're going to sing a song this evening called, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming. It's based on the text of Isaiah 11 and verse 1. There we read this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Now, who's Jesse? Jesse's David's father. And the idea is Isaiah is prophesying at a time where he's anticipating judgment and exile for the people of God. And that is, where, where have the promises of God gone? We were told a son of David was going to reign on his father's throne forever, but now it's just like the promises have been grinded down to just a little stump. But here Isaiah says, there, there will come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, from that line, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then Isaiah talks about what he will be and what he will do as the Christ and as the Messiah. But it's this description I want you to hear. We're talking about cosmic reconciliation. Here's what Isaiah envisions in Isaiah 1 verse 6. Here's what the Christ is going to do and what he's going to bring about. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. Would you let your little child lead a lion or a wolf? A little child's going to do that as part of this cosmic reconciliation. The cow and the bear shall graze. And their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. No longer will nature be red in tooth and claw. The lion's going to eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and adder's like a snake. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, an end of all violence. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall all the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea, all the pieces coming back together, all that was in fracture and disrepair and dislocation, being united in the Son of God, the Son of David, He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What I want us to see is that all this reconciliation and renewal and restoration is going to take place. And Isaiah anticipates, through the Son of David, through the coming Christ, there will be such a transformation that the whole created order will be affected. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The lion's going to eat straw. And the little baby is going to play with snakes like toys because there will be no threat of violence and all of the Lord's holy mountain. And and what's more, God will, as part of this reconciliation, draw all the nations to Himself and to one another. Cosmic reconciliation. The whole created order being brought into harmony. And this will be achieved through the Son of David, through the Christ who is to come. Now back to our text in Colossians 1.20. And Paul is saying, this is precisely what is happening now in Jesus. 
God's work in Christ has in view the reclamation of the entire universe, tainted as it has been by the fall. This is what is envisioned in our passage. Verse 19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile in Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. What is envisioned is the restoration and renewal that encompasses the whole created order cosmic reconciliation. All right, one more thing to highlight here, and then we'll consider the last point. We must notice finally the means through which God has achieved and is achieving this work of cosmic reconciliation is focused on a singular event, and that event is the death of the Son of God on the cross. Through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, how is He going to do it? Making peace by the blood of His cross. The cross is the means. His death is the means. No reconciliation, no restoration, no harmony, no renewal, no peace unless the Son of God dies in our place. And that means that in the cross, friends, God was doing far more than saving you. Christ's work on the cross is about so much more than your individual salvation. Christ on the cross was reconciling the cosmos to Himself. He was ushering in a new kingdom in which the wolf and the lamb will lie down together and all that is broken and wrong and fractured in the world will be made right. God is bringing about harmony and unity to the whole created order through His death on the cross. This is the first point. We appreciate that the implications of the cross are so much more, so much greater than your individual salvation. In the cross, Christ is uniting the entire created order and reconciling all things to Himself. Okay, that's the first point. I said I'd spend most of my time on that one. Secondly, we've seen Christ's work on the cross is about so much more than your individual salvation. Now, secondly, this is, this is just awesome. It's just wonderful to be a Christian and have good news to preach. Number two, Christ's work on the cross involves nothing less than your individual salvation. It involves more, but it involves nothing less than God saving you and purchasing your redemption. Let me show you this, verse 19, follow along here, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. You read Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and it's just an awesome resume, right? He's the firstborn of the creation. He's the beginning. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might be preeminent, and all the fullness of God dwells in Him, and He's reconciling all these things to Himself. Him, 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 and then you come into the picture. Here's this glorified, preeminent Christ. And Paul says, now wait a minute. Oh, he's reconciling all things. But you know, you too are a part of this. You, you, who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you, God is reconciled to himself. Can you imagine being this little band in Colossae, sort of just dazzled by this picture of Christ that's being portrayed and the letters being read out. You're like, how could this Christ, I mean, how can I even know Him or experience Him? Like, He's just so much greater than I fathomed or understood that He would be. And then Paul says, oh, by the way, and you, what, the twelve of you, the hundred of you, we don't know how many, you sitting here, He's reconciling you too. You're part of this work. You, you who were alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds, He's reconciled you to Himself through the same act, through the crucifixion of His body of the flesh, 
on the cross. You are part of this picture also. You might think of Jesus' earthly ministry. But what strikes me about Jesus' ministry, you know, you know in, in, in coming into the world, Jesus was ushering in the coming of a new kingdom, right? Wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom comes. There's all these things to manifest what His kingdom will be like. Where He comes, people are healed of their diseases and death is beat back and even, even weather patterns change and food is provided where no food was in the first place. He's going about reconciling all things to Himself, showing us what the harmony and the peace and unity is meant to look like. So you might think now of some of Jesus' personal interactions with sinners. Take the woman with the flow of blood in Luke 8 has this terrible ailment that she's had for years and years and years and years and years. Just in the previous two chapters, do you know what Jesus is doing? For starters, He raises someone from the dead. He goes about healing the diseases of all the people in the crowd. He, he, he actually changes the weather uh, where there's this storm that's going to destroy the disciples. He, with a word, calms the storm. He's healing diseases. He's providing food for people. He's beating back the effects of sin and death. And in fact, he's on his way to raise from the dead a 12-year-old girl in Luke 8. He's, he's busy. He's reconciling all things to himself. He's bringing harmony and order into the world through his ministry. And then you have this, this sweet woman, and she's, she's thinking, I don't know that I could talk to this man. I don't know that he would have the time of day for me, but I've heard of what he's doing, and he's He's changing the world, and he's, he's, he's beating back the effects of sin, and he's healing diseases, and he's raising people from the dead, and he's commanding the weather, and he's casting out demons. And Well, well you know what? Maybe, maybe here's what I'll do. Maybe if I can somehow get into the crowd, he doesn't even need to look at me, doesn't need to talk to me. Maybe if I just brush by him and just touch, his, touch the hem of his garment, maybe, maybe something of his power will, will rub off on me, and I'll be well. And what does she do? She, she arranges to be among this crowd, and Jesus is among the throngs of people, ushering in the kingdom and doing all the things that Jesus does. And she just sort of rushes by him, and she's made well immediately. And Jesus stops the whole parade. He says, I felt power go out of me. Who touched me? And the disciples are like, there's people touching you everywhere. What are you talking about? <laughs> You're surrounded by a crowd, Jesus, but he realized this was a touch of faith, and he singles her out, and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. You're, you're not ancillary to my work. You're part of this work that I'm doing. Your healing and your salvation is part of the redemption and the reconciliation I was meant to bring. Good news for you children here. There was a time in Mark 10 where Jesus was doing the same kind of stuff, feeding the crowds, healing diseases, casting out demons, bringing renewal and restoration to the world wherever He goes. And here are a bunch of little kids, and they want to come and see Jesus, and the disciples say, He's too busy. He's reconciling all things to Himself. He's too busy for the kids. And what does Jesus say? Do not permit the children from coming to Me. Let them come. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Don't you see they're part of the work that I'm doing? Their individual salvation is part of my reconciling of all things to myself. Jesus is on the cross, uniting the world by His blood, bringing about an end to the hostility between God and man and between man and man and bringing about a renewal of the whole created order. And He stops in the middle of that event and he looks to the thief on the cross to his right. He says, you're part of this. This day you will be with me in paradise. The cross of Christ involves a whole lot more than your salvation, but it involves nothing less. You're part of what the Lord is doing by his blood on the cross. And who's He doing it for? Jesus did not come to save a world of neutral seekers who were looking for Him. He says, no, 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 you, 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 who were alienated, who were hostile in mind. The root word, the root word of that word hostile is enemy. 
He came for his enemies, for rebels, people who are hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. To you, for you, he is reconciling you to himself through the body of flesh on the tree. Which means in order to qualify for the Lord's love, to qualify for the reconciliation that he offers, you need to meet three criteria. You need to be alienated from him. You need to be hostile in your mind. You need to have evil deeds that need to be forgiven. We talked about this in the equip class. Just everybody here needs to know this. Every single person here has things in their background that they are ashamed of. All of us have regrets. All of us have baggage. All of us have things that if the rest of us could see, it would make us ashamed. We may appear clean in our Sunday best, and we may sit among one another and cordially spend time together, but make no mistake, we're dirty, filthy sinners in need of the grace of God. We've been alienated from Him. We know what it's like to be hostile in our mind toward the Lord, and we've done evil deeds. The good news is it's such people the Lord came to save. It's such people the Lord came to reconcile to Himself. As part of His uniting of all things in Himself, it involves the salvation of individual sinners with all their individual sins and baggage. He comes to reconcile them also to Himself. I'm going to move to implications now. My time's almost gone, so I'm going to forego one point here, okay? I was going to talk about God's reconciling all things to Himself in Christ, right? And He's reconciling us. And yet, the world's not the way it should be yet, right? And I'm not yet the way I should be. He's going to make us holy and blameless before Him in love, right? And I think it's helpful that we recognize at this point there's this thing theologians call the already, not yet. Like already this work has been begun. The power of the kingdom is unleashed in the world, but not yet has it been fully accomplished. And I was going to talk about how that might explain some of the dissonance we feel in our own hearts. You're a work in progress, Christian. There's reconciliation that's begun. It will be completed at the last day. We'll talk more about that next week. Let me close with this. This reconciliation that we've been talking about of the whole cosmos, whole created order, this putting back together of the pieces, this retuning of the orchestra, this reconciliation of the created order to God, of sinners to God and sinners to one another, can only be accomplished, is only accomplished through the death of the Son of God, which means there will be and there can be no reconciliation, no harmony and no peace outside the cross. As lovely as this sounds, the repair and restoration and renewal of the whole creation and of my own sinful recalcitrant heart, it can only come through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, my friend with us today, you may not understand exactly how that works or what that entails, but I think, I don't think I need to argue this point, I think we can all agree that we feel the need, at least, for this kind of reconciliation. Like, like, you know the universe is not how it's supposed to be. You know this in your heart, don't you? The world is fallen. The world's broken. The world's messed up. Like, don't you see that when you look at the world? And don't you see it when you look inward? Like, there's something wrong with the world. Isn't the world kind of aching and groaning and longing? Do you sense that? There's a woman named Annie Dillard. Do you know that name? Annie Dillard. She wrote a book in the 70s called The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek and did, uh, I think, won a Pulitzer Prize in uh, the 1970s. And in that book, Dillard documents her experiences out in nature. She goes out into nature to Tinker Creek somewhere in the Appalachian Mountains somewhere, and she spends a year among nature, and she documents her experiences there. And she observes in the wild, she's taking out all her observations, she sees that the strong eat the weak. She sees that nature is red in tooth and claw. She sees violence. 
She says that at the end of the narrative, she says, I've seen so much violence this year as I've looked out on the natural realm. And she comes to feel increasingly that there's something wrong with the world. And it's not just nature, like animals and plants and trees, it's like human nature. Like she sees what's going on in nature as a commentary on her own heart and her relationships and indeed the whole world. And she becomes in many ways disillusioned with the world and with herself. It's a true story. And yet, at the same time, in her narrative, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she sees traces of beauty, little glimmers of hope, and she senses nature's yearning to be something more than what it is. There's this disharmony and there's this dissonance, and yet she senses also in nature and in herself a kind of longing and a kind of searching and a sort of intuition that it's not supposed to be this way, like something's got to give. And she leaves you hanging and doesn't answer what that thing is. But she arrives at this dilemma. She sees the world is truly fallen and broken. She famously says, the world is a monster. And yet she finds in herself a deep-seated intuition that the world is meant to be more. And she writes a kind of pining for greater coherence and harmony and meaning in the world. Now, I'll just ask you, is Dillard an outlier? Or do you feel this way also? When you look at the world, does it appear to be put together? Does it appear to be in harmony? Now, now we all sense this, right? The world's not as it was meant to be. There's all kinds of hatred and hostility and alienation and division in the world. Something's wrong. Something's got to give, right? I just ask you, my friend, what resources do you have to address what you find wrong in the world? Like, in your heart of hearts, you know it's not meant to be this way. Do you have resources to fix the aches and the pains and the longings? Will it be through some legislation or some program of therapy? Will it come from our poets and our artists? Will they lead the way? Maybe the activists and the romantics. Maybe if we could just get the right candidate in office... That will lead us toward utopia and some kind of peace and harmony in the world. As Theodore Roosevelt, President of the United States, promised a square deal. Franklin Delano Roosevelt promised us a new deal. And Harry Truman, a fair deal. JFK talked about a new frontier. Woodrow Wilson talked about a new freedom. Lyndon Baines Johnson talked about a great society. We're finally going to have it, right? Where are all those promises and those campaigns gone? Have they fixed the problems in the world? Are you bullish and optimistic that this fracture and whatever it is that ails the world is going to be healed? I tell you, in the Christian faith and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a solution to this dilemma. You are absolutely right. Things are not as they were meant to be. Things are broken and fractured. They're broken and fractured in our world, and they're broken and fractured in your own heart. But Christ promises a reconciliation of all things in Himself, a putting back together of the pieces. All that you see wrong in the world, all your intuitions about how this world is not what it was meant to be, those intuitions are correct. And in Jesus Christ, they're going to be addressed and fulfilled and satisfied. The world is going to be renewed and restored and reconciled in Christ. And all the little broken pieces of your own heart your own sinful life, the motives and the desires that you're ashamed to even state pass through your brain and pass through your mind and your heart, they will be addressed also. Those who are alienated and hostile in mind and who have done evil deeds, they too can be reconciled in Jesus Christ. My friend, you can be reclaimed. You can be restored and renewed. All that is wrong in you can be addressed, but the only way it could be addressed is through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is God's plan for bringing about reconciliation and restoration. You turn from your sins and you believe on Him and He will change you. And He'll cause you to be born anew. And you'll see rising up within you, alongside some of those old sinful motives, new desires and new instincts and new loves. And the promise is there is coming a day when He will present you holy and blameless. Don't you feel like like I was meant to be blameless? 
I was meant to be holy. I was meant to be right. And why is there so much sin and wrongdoing and wickedness in my life? Like, I'm meant to be more. You're right. You were meant to be more. You were meant to be holy and blameless in Jesus Christ. And His promise is, if you come to Him in faith and repentance, He will do this for you. And you'll be presented in splendor and glory forever. I so appreciated that illustration that Matt gave us last week. The tension we feel in our own hearts, it's like, what do you say? Uh, new, new creation software running on old creation hardware. Isn't that great? Computer nerds at least like that. You know? <laughs> One day, all that is wrong and at odds in me will be given a new body in paradise forever with the Lord and I'll experience all the reconciliation and harmony and peace and healing I was meant to as a child of God. That's available for everyone here if you'll turn from your sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do, we do recognize that so much is wrong in the world and within us. We thank you by the initiatives of grace and pure love and mercy. You have come to fix and to make a right all that is wrong within us and in this world. We thank you that you were moved in love to send forth your Son, that through his birth and through his death and through his resurrection, you have seen fit to reconcile all things to him. We thank you that included in the all things is individual sinners like me and my brothers and sisters here, and even those yet outside of Christ who may turn from their sins and believe. We thank you that you had time. It wasn't a distraction. It wasn't an interruption to your work to heal that poor woman in Luke 8. And it wasn't a distraction to receive the children into your arms. It was part of your work. It's what you were doing. And even a man like the thief on the cross that lived his whole life in sin and with regret and with sorrows and with baggage, you considered it part of your work to reclaim him and to save him and to bring him into paradise. Bring us also with him. Bring us also with them. Save us to the uttermost. Let us hear that trumpet that will one day sound, cause the dead to be raised, and may we experience that change where we will be changed and made incorruptible through what our Lord has done. We long for that day when this reconciliation will reach its fullness. Help us now to walk in faithfulness and to walk in godliness, to grow in being reconciled more and more to our Savior. We pray that everyone here those we are connected to, that we have occasion to talk to, particularly in this season, would have the brightest hopes of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. We thank you that that is our message. We thank you for the privilege of being Christians. We thank you for the joy of being reconciled through what our Lord has done. We pray that more and more would be brought in. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.